0: Do you enjoy our podcasts? Help us to be able to continue creating quality content by visiting our merch store at store.another12.org. You'll find some great merch there, and the best part about it is that a portion of every purchase goes to support the work that we do. Welcome to Drippings from the Honeycomb, the official podcast of Another Twelve Ministries. We are so glad that you have decided to join us as we enjoy the sweetness of God's word one verse at a time. Will God really punish those who reject Jesus and the gospel? Matthew 11.23 says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom it would have remained unto this day. It is really impossible to look at this verse and understand it in any kind of meaningful way unless you first know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were two major cities that were in the Canaanite plain, and this is from the time of Abraham, when Abraham was wandering through what would be the promised land, the land that God had promised to give his descendants And he was living in the wilderness. And these cities were down in the plain where it was more fertile, where there was more access to water. It was easier living there, and that's why they settled cities in that region. And Abraham's nephew lived in the actual city of Sodom. He had separated from Abraham at one point. They were both living in the wilderness, but their herdsmen were fighting over resources like food for their flocks and water for their flocks because it was the wilderness and it was more difficult to live in that place. And so Abraham had said to Lot, pick where you want to go. You can go this way, and if you go this way, I'll go that way. Or you could go that way, and if you go there, I'll go the other way. And so on. And Lot chose to go down in the plain because it was more fertile, it was better for supporting livestock, and there were cities there. But the problem with this area was that the cities were incredibly wicked. They were legendary for their wickedness. In fact, we derive certain words that describe terrible things from the names of these cities. And so, these cities were places that did not worship God. They were idol-worshiping pagans. They practiced all forms of sexual deviancy. They were very, very lewd in their conduct, and they were extremely grotesque in their worship. And this is the place that Lot ends up going. And after a certain amount of time, God decides that he can no longer stand the evil from these cities on the earth. These cities were so wicked that they were an affront to God. Now, if you think about how wicked our world is today, how much evil is in the world today, These cities were worse because they were so bad that they invited a specific visit from heavenly angels tasked with destroying this city. And we believe that one of these figures that appears to Abraham and notifies him that he's going to be destroying these cities is a theophany or an appearance of Jesus before the incarnation because Abraham addresses him with terms of deity He pays him reverence that would not be due to an angel. And so there is indication here that this was actually an appearance of one of the trinity. And this should give us a clue right off the bat of just how wicked these cities were. But Abraham knew that his nephew lived there. He knew that Lot lived in these cities. And so he tries to make an agreement with God. He pleads for Lot's life, and he keeps asking God to spare the city if a certain number of righteous people can be found in the city. And he starts with a higher number, around 50, and then he lowers that, and he lowers that, and he gets down to 10. And all the while, God has been agreeing that if these people could be found, if there's righteous people that could be found within the city, that add up to the agreed upon number between him and Abraham, that he will withhold his destruction of the city. But ultimately, when the angels of the Lord, the two other figures that are with this divine figure, enter into the city, they do not find even ten righteous people there. In fact, they are taken in by Abraham's very nephew, Lot, because they're standing in the city square, and night is approaching, and he says, you can't stand there. It's too dangerous for you. You have to come inside. This is how dangerous the city was. And when they're inside, people who had seen them and knew that they were strangers, the men of that town begin beating on the doors of Lot's house, demanding that he throw these men outside so that they can do unspeakable things to these men. This is how they welcomed strangers into their city. This is how twisted that city was. And rather than sending out his guests, he actually offers to give his daughters to the crowd to do whatever they want to them. But the crowd is so incredibly wicked that they begin pressing against Lot against the door, trying to break in, and the angels rescue him. And ultimately, the angels would drag Lot and his family, his wife and his two daughters, they drag them out of the city, and God rains down burning sulfur from heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and several other cities that were there on the plain. And he burns them up, and he kills all the inhabitants for their tremendous wickedness. And it says that when Abraham looked out over the plain, he saw the smoke rising up from the cities like a furnace. And you can imagine that in the history and the lore of Israel, because Abraham had actually interceded for these cities and had been an eyewitness to this event, that the tales of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction were somewhat of a heroic tale for the Israelite people of the power and the majesty and the holiness of God, that he would rain down fire from heaven and destroy these cities because they were so wicked. And Israel, being God's chosen people who was called out to live a life of righteousness— and was delivered from Egypt with a mighty hand where the plagues rained down on Pharaoh and then had seen all of the armies of the Canaanites fall before their army as God had destroyed the armies of the Canaanites when the Israelites were obedient to him, this would have really been one of the tales of old, one of the great stories of old how their great God had triumphed over evil. And so there isn't really anything more that you could compare an Israelite to that would be worse than saying that they were worse than a Sodomite, or that their city was worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. That was probably one of the most horrific things you could say to an Israelite. It was an insult of the highest degree. There was nothing you could say that would be more insulting to an Israelite. So when Jesus says that Capernaum, the city where he was living during his ministry, his ministry headquarters, the home of Peter, the home of some of the other disciples. When he comes right out and says that Capernaum has harder hearts than the people of Sodom, this is an absolutely scandalous statement. This is something that is so incredibly offensive, I cannot even imagine the responses of the people around him that heard this. It must have been pure shock and horror. One of those statements where you would immediately say, that person is dead to me. That person is completely out of my life. I never want to hear them speak to me ever again. Because they just called me worse than someone from a city that God burned off the face of the earth because of their heinous sin. And if you look at the next verse, it says something even more incredible. It says, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So Jesus doesn't even pause. He just doubles down on what he has just said. But what is the real driving force behind the words of Jesus here? Why is he saying what he's saying about Capernaum? Well, Capernaum, to that point in history, had received the greatest revelation of the Messiah of anyone. No one else had the Messiah actually living in their town, doing mighty works in their town. That was where he spent a huge portion of his time because he stayed there during his ministry years. Sure, he was going around the surrounding area preaching and teaching, but he would come back to Capernaum and he did a lot of teaching and a lot of healing in Capernaum. So, they got to see many mighty works. They got to hear lots of his teaching, and yet they still rejected him as the Messiah. And he simply makes the point of, listen, if I had done this in Sodom, if I had made Sodom my ministry headquarters, that town would have repented. They would have actually turned to me But you are Jews, you have all of the scriptures, you have all of the prophecies, you know what to look for, you know that a Messiah is coming, and here I am, living right in your town, ministering in your town, you have total access to me, and yet you're rejecting me. You're worse than Sodom, because you have the key to eternal life right in your town, And you're too arrogant, too hard-hearted, and too sinful to see it. You are so caught up in your way, so confident that you can get to God on your own, so confident that because you are Jews, you don't need anything else. And you're so bought into this idea of nationalistic pride That the Messiah must come and throw off Rome and raise up Israel in the here and now, rather than a Messiah that is coming to take away your sins and who will set up an eternal kingdom. You want a temporal kingdom here and now, and so you're rejecting me because I'm not the kind of Messiah that you want. It doesn't matter what signs and works I'm doing. It doesn't matter what preaching I'm doing. It doesn't matter how many of you I'm ministering to, or what evidence there is, or how many prophecies point to me as being the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah you want, and so you're just rejecting me. And that makes you worse than Sodom. Those are some incredibly terrifying words from the Messiah. Those are words that should absolutely shake every person who reads them to the core. And how do they apply to us today? Does our world stand under the same judgment as Capernaum if we reject Jesus and the gospel? Unfortunately, we stand under a worse judgment than Capernaum if we reject the gospel. And you might be thinking, how is that possible? Capernaum had Jesus right there. But don't forget, Jesus' ministry wasn't finished yet. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross. Jesus hadn't been resurrected. Jesus hadn't ascended to the throne of God. Jesus' ministry had not yet been recorded by multiple eyewitnesses, attested to by multiple eyewitnesses, and documented through the scriptures of the New Testament. And the people in Capernaum didn't have access to the church, the body of Christ, here on earth. They didn't have the testimony of billions of lives over the last 2,000 years that have been changed by the power of God. They didn't have 2,000 years of writing and preaching and teaching that affirmed the gospel, that affirmed the ministry of Jesus, that showed the validity of the scriptures. And so, in reality… The world today actually has more evidence for Jesus, more evidence for the truth of the gospel, more evidence for God, more evidence for the validity of Scripture than Capernaum did 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke this curse over them. And that's a thought that is even more terrifying, because if Sodom will be judged less than Capernaum then we can be sure with all of the evidence that we have been given for God, for his work, for Jesus Christ, for the salvation that is available to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then judgment for our world will be worse than Capernaum. Because we have more. And to reject Jesus is a more egregious offense today, even than it was when those who stood in his own presence were condemned by him for rejecting him. So, what does that mean for believers? Well, for believers, we should be about the message of the gospel. We should be giving the message of the gospel to everyone around us with urgency. Why? Because the judgment of God is something worthy of being feared. The judgment of God is something that we should not wish on our worst enemy. Jesus lived a perfect life and died a perfect death to give people hope and an escape from the judgment of God. In fact, more than just an escape, a rich fellowship with him for eternity in a perfect world that he is making at the end of this age. We should be burdened to spread the message of the gospel with everyone around us so that they can partake in the glorious promise that Jesus has given us through his death, resurrection, and life. And for those who have not accepted the message of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ, if you're listening to this today, the call is simple. Jesus desires a relationship with you. He desires you to bow the knee to him and to give your life to Him, to commit to follow Him and become His disciple, to give up everything that you are, to give up all that you have, to follow Him for the promise of life eternal and things that are so much better than this world that you cannot even imagine. Life with Him, in a perfect place, in perfect fellowship with Him and with everyone else that is part of His family, in a perfected world that He will remake— And he has done everything to accomplish this work for you. Love drove him to the cross. Love drove him to this earth. Love drove him to make the ultimate sacrifice for sinners like me, like you. And his salvation is given to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus and who commit to follow him with all of their life, willing to give up this life, for what Jesus has promised his followers in the future, which is a far better life than we could ever attain here under any circumstance. And so I would encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God, fall on your knees and ask him to save you. Ask him to come into your life, commit your heart to follow him, and get involved with a local church that can shepherd you and disciple you into a true relationship with God, serving Him with all your heart, and become part of the family of believers who are anxiously looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ when we will be with Him and we will be together in glory. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Drippings from the Honeycomb. If you would like to learn more about another 12 ministries, and the work that we are doing to train youth ministry leaders to bring the gospel to young people, visit another12.org. If you would like to support our ministry, click on the donate link in the description below.